Welcome to the Staff Edge Podcast, where we interview software engineers who have progressed beyond the career level into staff levels and beyond. We're interested in the areas of work that set staff plus level engineers apart from other individual contributors. Things like setting technical direction, mentorship and sponsorship, providing engineering perspective to the org, etc. My name is David Noel Romas, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Kessinger. We're both staff plus engineers who have been working in software for over a decade. Alex, please tell us a bit about today's guest. Our guest today is Mike McQuaid. He is a staff engineer at GitHub. Additionally, he's a project leader for the Homebrew Project, which is a package manager for Max. This interview was a lot of fun. I got a kick out of what the GitHub monolith is called, and on top of that, I enjoyed hearing about Mike's work. I think others will enjoy it as well. Let's get into it. Well, Mike, it is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. If we could start by having you Tell us kind of in your own words who you are and and what you do. Sure thing. So I work as my day job as a staff engineer in the communities team in GitHub. And yeah, I've been at GitHub for about seven years and I've been a staff engineer, I guess, about six months now. And then my related hat outside of work is I'm the project leader for Homebrew, a Mac package manager as well. Awesome. At GitHub, is there a typical set of expectations for a staff engineer or does everyone sort of do it a little bit differently? I think uh, probably a bit of both. Um, So there's a set of expectations in terms of what is required for you to hit a benchmark to hit that promotion. So like I guess a base level of expectation across various different kind of metrics. So in my case, it was something that we've been sort of talking about these metrics for a few years and stuff like that. And there were some that I'd probably been meeting for five years. And then there's some that were the ones that I was struggling with, which I kind of had to get up to par in order to get promoted. So I think it's, for me, it's a combination as well of whether you have those attributes and whether your manager feels that you have those attributes and actually being able to demonstrate them and say in the last, whatever, six, 12 months, here's, a demonstration of say something like mentoring or project management type work or whatever, like being able to actually point to work and say, okay, I did this and it demonstrated that I was effective and other people kind of uh, respected my work on that rather than just three years ago, I did this, therefore I can do it. So, you know, that's fine. Cool. Do you, do you feel like there's a good definition of the difference between someone who's like just about to be staff plus and someone who is staff plus or like what are the typical deltas between whatever is less experienced than a staff and a staff at GitHub? Yeah. So for us, the leveling goes senior staff, principal distinguished. And I guess I'll focus on senior to staff because that's what I know. I can talk a little bit about senior to principal, but then our, our distinguished engineers have been, I imagine like a lot of places sort of, unicorns in some respect where i think our our internal benchmarks talk about you know you need to make industry-wide impact so as much of a flowchart you can follow to to get that but i I think for us the the jump from a senior to a staff looks i guess a fair amount like will has talked about in the book where you're taking a a step out from beyond what you might already be doing as a senior you know we, we would expect a senior to be um doing a certain amount of work like mentorship, review, splitting up projects, being able to lead projects, stuff like that. 
Whereas for a staff, it we really want to feel that like you not only do all those things and can do those things, but you are pretty excellent at um, the majority, if not all of them. And also, I guess when your work starts to step outside, primarily contributing through code. So we have a bunch of senior engineers who, you know, spend a lot of time doing things like glue work. I imagine a fair number of the people will listening to this will have either read that blog post or heard that talk. So I won't redefine that. But so we see a lot of people doing that type of work, but it's pretty rare that we have senior engineers where that's the majority of their role is doing stuff like that. You know, most of them, particularly I guess in the part of the company where I'm at, where we're primarily doing user-centric feature development. Those user-centric features that you build are probably going to be the majority of your of your output, even if they're not necessarily always the majority of your time that's what you're going to be judged upon and we see the people who kind of move into staff is when you are going a bit above and beyond on that stuff so you're not just you there's perfectly like great seniors that i work with that will work with a pm or a designer or sorry pm being product manager designer on the team their engineering manager whatever they'll take work they'll deliver it on time to a high quality and that's that. Whereas the staff folks, it's always tends to be the people who are going a little bit above and beyond. So I guess to think of someone else on my team who just got promoted literally in the last week. So they're someone who, for example, you know, they were tasked with doing a, a migration for this is a GitHub sponsors was the stuff that we worked on together. So GitHub sponsors used to share a lot of the back end with GitHub Marketplace, which enabled us to get something out the door pretty quickly, but we wanted to sort of split them out. So she was sort of assigned with doing that. And instead of just doing the work, cranking out some code, whatever, basically went and split out the work, made a plan for the next six to 12 months of how this process was going to work, and then went off on maternity leave for some of that time and came back. And effectively, her plan had been executed more or less to the letter while she was away. And everything was just smoothly running while she was out. And to me, like that's that's the type of thing that I... That's not an example that everyone does, but those are the types of things that I look around the company. I see people who are kind of crossing that threshold starting to do when they're they're doing those type of tasks that are really impactful on a bunch of other engineers' work beyond just writing code. Cool. And when you were promoted, was there a particular initiative or a project that you worked on that sort of took you past the finish line? Yeah, I think so. So for me, it was probably two projects that sort of were pretty closely linked. So we, we have in GitHub, the main application we refer to as kind of GitHub, GitHub, which is a, a big Rails monolith. So GitHub, GitHub, because it's under the GitHub organization on GitHub and it's the repository called right. GitHub. It's, I think, the oldest repository there. And it's, you know, what the, you can, it's cool going back through the, the full history and seeing the founders kind of when they originally started the, the company and the project and stuff like that. Yeah. But obviously over however many years it's been now, I guess 11 or 12 or whatever years that GitHub has been around, that's kind of grown and are certainly one of the highest traffic sort of Rails monoliths there are, if not maybe the highest traffic, I don't know. But yeah, and when you're clicking around the site, you know, if we release a new feature, if it's something like GitHub Actions, say, there's going to be a lot of that stuff that is outside the monolith and you can spin up new microservices pretty easily. But, you know, say you want something like on a pull request, you want to have 
your reviews handled differently or whatever it may be like that that feature is probably 99 100% of that code is going to be written inside the monolith so we have hundreds of engineers who are making changes and doing you know their work probably primarily in that monolith so two problems that have been building up over time that are sort of related one was we had an on-call rotation for the monolith you know started with a probably reasonable number of people when i i think i was initially on the infrastructure team when they started that and it was just the idea of getting more application engineers to sort of take responsibility for the application code side of things rather than you know ops people being woken up when it's clearly an application problem and you know it started off with maybe 20 30 people and that rotation had grown to the point where it was probably more like 150 people by the end so you you have people who are on call effectively twice a year for the entire site and and everything that's not a microservice um that can go wrong is essentially for them to sort of monitor and watch and i think that obviously anyone who's been on call or dealt with that situation could probably start to immediately cycle through the the many things that can and, <laughs> and will go wrong in that situation um and and yeah and, and i would actually say it, it held up pretty well for a pretty decent amount of time but i think the work that was going into it was quite unevenly distributed because you would have some people who really knew that what they were doing who would help out all the time even when they're not on call and then some people who would be on call and just you know spent the shift um hoping that they weren't going to get paged and if they did you know they, they knew how to handle things reasonably well but there certainly wasn't that that level of in my opinion the the ideal which is that when i get on paged it's for something that i'm closely related to right. so perhaps even ideally something that i'm actually working on so that presented us with a problem that okay well what we want to do is effectively split this up so that every team that's working on them on the monolith has their own on-call rotation but then the that presented a a comparable side by side problem, which was okay, who owns what code in the monolith? So we have, I'm sure, a lot of folks have used kind of the the code owners feature on GitHub, where you can make certain files or whatever owned by certain teams. And then we had our own thing, which sort of predated that, called areas of responsibility, which was sort of a, a more declarative thing that you could annotate your rails models and things like that sorry rails controllers and the problem was is that these had both been around for a while they disagreed with each other in certain ways they weren't very heavily linted and whenever you had a, a company reorg and a team used to own this and now owns this those cases weren't always updated so we ended up with a problem there of how to assign that ownership and get that information correct and stop a certain degree of backsliding so we introduced a thing which is unlikely to be publicly shipped because it's pretty special snowflake territory for like how vast our monolith is and stuff like that um a thing called service owners which is effectively a bit like code owners but splits the code base along the lines of services rather than um things being owned by teams so effectively it moves a what was a one-to-one -one mapping to a like a a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one mapping so you have instead of a file being owned by a team a file is now owned by a service and a service is maintained by a team and that has allowed us to kind of sort out the ownership um and make the linting a lot stricter so you can't have 
teams that accidentally own, sorry, multiple teams that accidentally own the same file or whatever. But then that also allowed us to segment out all our um, on-call stuff as well. So things like exceptions, background jobs failing, um, a lot of our logging, all the stuff's now annotated with the service. And then the service from that, you can look up the relative team and then effectively page the right people. So I I sort of was involved with the initial conception of that. And then I probably did, you know, a lot of maybe the majority of the sort of implementation side and sort of shipped that to completion at the same time as sort of splitting out the on-call rotations and developing a bunch of training and stuff like that alongside that to kind of trying to ease people into the new process and good ways of doing on-call and things. So yeah, so for me, I think that's that was the, the sort of project that I um that very much felt like a sort of staff project that i think got me the promotion interesting i want to circle back to sort of the service owners thing and to sort of um project execution in general but something that you mentioned earlier you mentioned that you know you you oversee the homebrew project we've noticed a pattern where a lot of staff engineers we talk to are also pretty heavily involved with open source or uh, have previous experience as a, as a founder or as an early employee at a startup. Anyway, I'm curious to what extent you think your experience uh, in open source has influenced your sort of day-to-day work, and, and especially if you think there are aspects of the staff engineer role that, that sort of stem from your experience in, in open source. Yeah, no, I think so. And I mean, the early stage startup stuff as well, I wouldn't have thought about that necessarily, but that feels related too. So I think the thing that I see on both of them, I guess the the biggest thing from open source is at least in GitHub, staff engineers and principal engineers do not have direct reports. So as we live in in the org chart and some staff engineers report to directors instead of engineering managers and principal engineers report to VPs instead of directors. And, but because you don't have that reporting relationship, you don't so much have the ability to order people around essentially like you the, the probably the, the most formal power you have is the ability to say no to things and sort of you know shoot down proposals or require changes to be met but you know if, if i want something someone to do something for me i can't go and tell them that's in terms of how the organization is technically run that's down to their their manager or or product manager or whatever to decide and in a lot of ways, that's very similar to open source, where on Homebrew, I can't ever tell anyone what to do, or I can try, but they, they won't necessarily do it. So I feel in both cases, you can have someone who has effectively no hard power, but quite a lot of soft power. So with Homebrew, I've been working on the project for, I think, 11 wow. years now. I'm almost losing count at this point. Um, and most of the maintainers who are around today I've been involved with kind of proposing that they join the project and helping them on board and stuff like that. So I think there's a certain amount of kind of trust there that they know that I'm not going to just, you know, bark orders at them. But at the same time, if I do sort of say, hey, please, can we do this? Or I really strongly object to this. Like a lot of the time, that's enough for people. It's not always. And there's definitely times even in the last year where I've been quite frustrated that I I don't have more hard power and I can't just say no to things and I lose arguments. But I mean, that's probably a sign that it's it's healthy and that the process is working well. That I'm not just getting to getting to boss people around. Hmm. 
And I, I guess similarly, the early stage startup, I think the other thing that comes from both open source and that angle, I was the first employee at a company called Mendeley a few years ago. And I feel like there's a, to talk about, I guess, Will's archetypes, like I, I kind of see myself along the lines of like a solver um, with the work that I do in in GitHub. And I think there's definitely an open source and early stage startup approach of being like, if you have a problem and it technically belongs to another team, do you just, you know, say to that team, hey, I want slash need you to do this? Or do you go and basically see the problem through to completion yourself, which may or may not involve the other team doing it or not, but it's kind of taking ownership of of some of these problems. And it's definitely something you see the more junior an engineer is, the more they may feel slightly, I don't know, um, helpless or frozen or whatever if something is very much outside of the responsibility of them or their Especially team. Especially in a bigger org, right? Yeah, it's really tempting totally. to look at a problem as a junior engineer in a bigger org and say, oh yeah, that's a problem, but it's not my problem. <laughs> I, I, it reminds me in many ways that it's very similar with open source. And I guess obviously unsurprisingly in GitHub, you know, almost all of the stuff we do, including a lot of even configuration, you know, if I want to be added or removed credentials for a service, that's a pull request on a repository uh, that gets a review and a merge and stuff like that. And so it, it's it's quite easy for me to look at that and see the part of my brain goes, oh, this is open source. I know this. And say, okay, well, if I'm making a deploy and there's, some, there's a message in there that's output that I'm like, that's wrong or that's really confusing or why doesn't that link to the document that someone asked me about? Like, I can just go and create a pull request and, you know, try and make it better. And it, it may be that that's not, always the best thing to do and or it may be that that will tread on toes or that the other team will kind of have a different direction they want to go from my pull request but again that's that's similar with open source you know it's not every pri submit is one that i would expect necessarily to be merged but the idea of doing that rather than i guess the open source consumer or maybe as you say big corporation um approach of well i'll just go and ask the other team to do it you know, it doesn't always pay off how it should because it may well be important to you, but it's quite possibly not important to them. And if you're willing to do the the groundwork or the coding work or the testing work or or any part of the work really to facilitate that, then you may well find that 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 team, that maintainer, that project, that company is dramatically more receptive to doing what you would like them to do. You know, it's making it easy for them to to do the right thing. That makes sense. And it's actually a good segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is basically, uh, how do you decide what to work on? Yeah. So this is something that gets kind of a lot of conversation and thought, and I'm still I'm still figuring this out. Um, so thankfully, I'm lucky enough to have kind of some good mentors at the company who've been doing this stuff better and longer than I have. But what I try to do in my case, it maybe sounds a little bit I don't know, hubristic, but but I think because I've been around at GitHub for a while, and again, because I worked on stuff like Homebrew for a while, I have sometimes more historical context, more relationships, and more, I guess, awareness of how other things are done. So what, what I'm trying to do is solve problems that have maximal impact that can only be done by me. And that sometimes means writing the code sometimes it means writing up a proposal or an issue or mentoring people or whatever it may be but certainly i guess 
our guidance for the code that I do write, I try to have the, because I guess there's that classic staff engineer thing of, you know, are you writing code anymore? Are you writing as much as you used to? And in my case, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely writing less than I used to, but I'm still writing a, you know, probably a non-trivial amount, but I'm trying to keep it focused on every pull request, commit, whatever I make. It's if I was to create an issue for this instead and completely wrote up what needed to be done here, would this get done in a sort of reasonable time frame by someone else? And if the answer is yes, then I shouldn't be writing that code. And if the answer is no, then I guess the next question is, is this actually important and worth doing? Or is it, you know, me fiddling around with something that uh, I find indulgent and fun rather than is really impactful? But, you know, I'm human. I'll allow myself to do that every so often. But that's the stuff I'm trying to do, at least, is trying to focus on things where I feel like the way the organization is set up right now, it's not going to get done otherwise. And then I guess the remaining parts of my work, I try and have a, I've tried to sort of set, I was when I initially was staff, kind of was on a feature team and was doing sort of some of this type of work, like on top of that work. But I found that didn't really scale terribly well. Um, and I, I think I just felt like I was a, a blocker on that team because I would get assigned work to do and then other stuff would keep pulling me away from that and i just felt like i was very unproductive and holding other people up so instead we've sort of moved more to a model where i'm encouraging basically any engineer on the team can come to me at any point and say hey mike i want you to review this i want you to help me with this whatever and that's i guess the sort of push and then the pull side is i have weekly meetings with my director at least one other ic with my manager people like that and from them i'm trying to almost like extract from them anything useful i can do to help so i'm looking for things where they have a gripe or whatever or think or say hey like what would you think about this idea and trying when i think it's when it's something i know that they care about trying to almost like go and often jump in solve the problem before they've even had a chance to sort of think about it so idea i liked that a previous manager before i was staff actually when he was talking about like what he wanted me to sort of grow into is he was talking about like giving me a a box of files rather than a file just like almost like right here's all the stuff i need to deal with right now you figure out what's important go off and do it and come back to me when it's done and i don't i will hopefully not have to give you dramatically as much guidance as i would have to give to a senior or or lower engineer and i find like that's that's the type of work i find that's really rewarding is when my you know director has something which has been bugging her or whatever and i can just go and say right i've i've done it without there be needing to be a conversation or back and forth or okay i'll add this to my roadmap and get to it in a month or whatever it may be that's that's interesting so i think i hear what you're saying is sort of like the, the work that you choose to do is something that you're uniquely situated to do, but also highly impactful. And it does sound like you're getting sort of like organizational signals sometimes that like this work is, is highly impactful. Are there any other tools that you use to make sure that the work that you're doing is impactful to the organization as a whole? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, for me, so the, the stuff I've been doing most recently is kind of it's somewhat obviously impactful in that it's very measurable work. So I, I'm improving some parts of our, I guess, local de- developer experience that like I, all of the people working on the monolith have to run some of this stuff 10 times a day. 
and I'm shaving like minutes off the time. And that's the stuff where impactfulness, you know, you can pretty much do back of the napkin calculations of how much time and probably even how much money you're saving the company when you improve stuff like that. Beyond that, I find it slightly harder. So certainly the stuff I was mentioning with almost like helping my director and stuff like that, I find those are the things that I struggle with a little bit more to to articulate the value directly beyond just like this person is my boss, they want this done, um, so I'm going to do this to help them. But I, I guess, I mean, even the performance work, I guess, like the way I came about discovering that work is looking at you know, a few years ago, I would have maybe been a bit more cynical about stuff like our OKRs. Whereas, you know, I looked at our CEOs OKRs, our departments OKRs, and got thinking maybe a little bit more abstractly, like what does it mean to do this? So one of ours was talking about, we're doing a lot of performance work on GitHub at the moment to try and make the site as a whole, like a lot faster basically and, and cut some of those edges. And that kind of got me thinking about like, well, you know, we're doing this effort on the site and but if you read the OKR describing this, it's not just external facing stuff. We're trying to be like high performance in general. So what does that look like when you look through the lens of empowering engineers on our team to be have higher performance tooling and things like that? So um, I can't necessarily speak to what that's going to turn into in the future because I'm not really sure. Um, and this has been the first probably big thing I've picked up since my kind of role has changed and I've left a feature team. But yeah, I guess I would I would like to have something which is I can demonstrate a measurable impact effectively. That's really cool. You mentioned that you you've done sort of infrastructure work and then earlier you were talking about how you improve the on-call experience for the monolith. And I feel like you've talked about like performance and sometimes those things because I think Many engineers see the innate value in that kind of work, but it's not always necessarily explicitly visible to the whole product experience. You know, do you or does GitHub have like a framework for understanding the impact of that sort of work that's less than visible in maybe the product experience? So for us, the the performance work right now is being like that has actually been like signaled pretty much from the top that this is really important and this is a, a high priority for us as a as a kind of engineering org and even as a company right now so i think i think that's helped um and i think from that perspective you know i've never had direct reports let alone kind of been vp c-suite whatever but i think having in this case a sort of a ceo and a vp of engineering who are both still fairly deeply technical and have a deeply technical background i think that has helped with this type of work um in that they're not just expecting you know features to get cranked out the door and, and not really kind of consider things like on call tech debt and um, performance stuff like that like i think their leadership has kind of helped from that perspective but i think as a company i think it's something where again hopefully it's something that staff engineers and principals and above are sort of contributing to that conversation as well because we can you know you can see sometimes flows where a product manager has spoken to users and this is what users want and they work with kind of a designer to sort of spec up what's going to get built and then the engineer kind of works with the implementation and builds it and that's a flow that works really well when you have a really good insight of what you're building and what's important and as you say like when you have those organizational priorities right and i think the tricky thing sometimes is if 
you have a, an engineer who assumes that the product manager is aware of technical debt and that they need to pay it down and that the fact that they're not talking about it means that they just must think it's not a priority right now i think that's something that is a sort of interesting diversion from that which i see i guess the some engineering managers but certainly i in in github i think that's a big part for the staff engineers to play um where they're kind of coming in and saying sometimes okay like you know this might look like a simple problem but we really have to pay down some tech debt while we go along and they are the ones who are sort of speaking to the product managers speaking to engineering managers or whatever and sort of articulating those concerns um from more junior engineers who may sometimes like know that there's tech debt and it's a problem that needs to be solved but they may sometimes struggle to explain that in a sort of business centric framing rather than like you know just this code is crappy it needs to be improved it's the staff engineers can actually articulate like well you know that feature that we just built that took longer than you thought it should have taken for us to do that yeah we think it's taken longer than it should have done too and the reason why is because of x and we need to fix x before we pick up something else like this and when you see people senior engineers staff engineers whoever really speaking to product managers or whoever on those terms then obviously it's it's a smooth process you know the product managers want this stuff and they care about this stuff being prioritized and dealt with too it's just sometimes there's there's sometimes assumptions made that it's that one person's focus is the same as another person's focus and that's i think the staff folks i know in the company at least are the ones who are much better at sort of cross-pollinating those ideas and making sure everyone's on the same page yeah that that makes sense and, and i think it addresses a lot of sort of like how to um, how staff engineers can interface sort of upward in their org. One of the things that I've seen staff engineers do as well is act as sort of the mediator sometimes between teams that sit, you know, quote unquote, below them in the org. So sometimes there's like different teams that are, you know, maybe they're planning projects that overlap and, and the staff engineer is helping them sort of find alignment in those projects. Or maybe they have a difference on how something should be implemented and the staff engineer sort of helps them find common ground. Have you seen that pattern as well? And if so, do you have any thoughts on sort of the, you know, how staff engineers can be effective in that role? This is the first one I have to be completely honest and say I haven't seen that pattern at all actually because we have so the the part of the org i'm in we have uh, i guess three teams technically that are sort of underneath us but they have been i mean a lot of this is down to our director our director has done such a good job of building those teams to feel like they're one big team and that they're one you know it's called the community organization so the fact you know there's an obvious pun about <laughs> them being a community of uh, teams there but yeah i i think they've done that in such a way that I don't think I've ever seen those teams be kind of oppositional to each other at all. I feel like I would be the first one to jump in and try and smooth things over and have people get on okay if that wasn't the case. But it's not something I've actually seen myself. That's fantastic. In that case, uh, you mentioned a, a minute ago um, OKR. So it sounds like that's that's a, a process that GitHub uses to sort of set objectives throughout the org. How do you work with your team to set objectives for sort of your group? Yeah, so from us, there's, I guess, different OKRs come from slightly different directions. So we have, you know, the company-wide ones and team-wide ones and and even kind of, in some cases, ones that tie directly to kind of products that were, I guess, products within GitHub itself. Obviously, GitHub itself is one product, but say something like GitHub sponsors. 
which has been something I've spent a lot of my time working on. So there, there may well be OKRs that specifically relate to that. So generally, those are kind of someone is the directly responsible individual who is kind of going to come up with the drafts for them and kind of push the process through to the conclusion. And generally, someone's kind of drafting these up. And then we tend to have a fairly open discussion, sometimes in meetings, sometimes in Google Docs, sometimes on pull requests, on markdown files, on kind of what people think about those, what people think about both the OKRs themselves and how they kind of map to, I imagine like most orgs, we tend to have ones where the CEO has their OKRs and then as you go down the hierarchy, effectively, they look like granulate, more granular versions of what the company-wide or CEO-wide um, OKRs are. So, you know, we'll have discussion about how how much we think they fit and how much these things are the things that we think are best able to impact those goals. And then obviously there's the sort of debate about numbers as well. I forget what our internal definition is, but it's, it's along the lines of, you know, you, you shouldn't be unambiguously smashing all the numbers and all your OKRs. If that's the case, then it's a sign that maybe they're not quite as ambitious as they could be or should be. But yeah, it, it's a fairly, I would say, a pretty collaborative process sort of all around. And we we try and have it be in such a way that the most junior engineers in the team are able to have just as much voice and input on those as folks who have been around for a long time and maybe a bit more senior. That's interesting to hear. I was uh, something that occurred to me as we were talking about sort of like cross-functional partnerships. You were you're mentioning like a product manager. I wonder if you could speak to this. If like is it a unique experience working at GitHub, also being an open source project maintainer? So you're literally using the product that you're building. And I'm curious, does that impact the the sort of conversations that you have with your product team? Yeah. In fact, this was something that came up. We had a we've got a a book club for the staff edge book happening at the moment. And this is something that came up yesterday, actually is that pretty much every engineer at GitHub is able to provide some sort of, you know, pretty well-informed input into the, the product. Cause not, I guess from outside the company, you would look at open source as well as being obviously, I guess in my case, I was probably using GitHub on a daily basis for, three years or so before I ever kind of applied to join the company, which took me three times instantly. And at the company, your average engineer is doing the same thing. You know, we have everything on GitHub is on GitHub. You know, we've in probably in the last couple of years, we've started using some tools like kind of Google Docs a little bit more, but certainly when I started, everything was an issue, was a PR, like it's the main default place for information to live on GitHub is on GitHub, uh, certainly for engineers and people inside the engineering org. And again, similarly, the default way of doing things on basically every repo is making a pull request and reviewing it that way. Even if I'm updating documentation and it's an actual typo, like it would be very rare for me to just push a commit because then you don't have that almost notification and conversation and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, as a result, Obviously, we have a lot of people in the company who are very, very opinionated, justifiably so, on how the product should work and what things it does that we like and what things it does that we don't like. And when it's it's kind of interesting because there's some features, I won't point out the specific ones, but there's some features that we've had to build a few years ago or whatever for various kind of contractual compliance reasons. 
And then we are, have to eventually comply with the, some of these same standards, particularly post-acquisition by Microsoft. And people find them, some of them really annoying. Some of the kind of the kind of behaviors which are were previously enabled or maybe more socially enforced and are now technically enforced. And people find it quite annoying. Um, and that's both a pro and a con because I, I guess our management team, their attitude is, which I actually thoroughly agree with, in that like, well, that's good because probably everyone who has to deal with these compliance requirements on GitHub finds it annoying. So let's find a way of making the entire product better for people in these cases rather than saying, okay, well, we'll we'll just turn this off for us or we'll hack around it or whatever because we don't like this feature. Let's say, okay, let's make this feature kind of better. How can we how can we avoid this this pain for for other people? And yeah, I I do think that that to go back to your original question, Alex, like I do think that that informs the conversation with product a lot because when you're talking about particularly stuff around pull requests, GitHub actions, GitHub sponsors, whatever, then we have people who have a lot of experience and a lot of opinions. And it's it's nice to see the vast majority of engineers at the company, I would say, would be pretty comfortable expressing those opinions on how they think the parts of the product that they're using should be working. But then on the flip side, there's the slight it's it's not unrelated to kind of the open source analogy we were saying before where if you're on the the pull request team at github or we don't have a dedicated pull request team but the, the team that maintains pull requests at github then it's a little bit more painful for you working on something which people use every day and people are making probably thousands of pull requests inside the company maybe maybe even t- tens of thousands on a daily basis. And if you slightly move their cheese, then you hear about it a lot quicker than someone who's you know working on some enterprise SAML feature or whatever that w- you may well end up touching eventually, but it's not so integral to, to their workflow. But then again, the flip side of that is, I think that does make us conservative on the things that are used very, very heavily, which is probably a, a good thing because, you know, it's as much as it's important for us, we have millions of users who are using GitHub every day who don't want their cheese moved either. So if we're going to do that, then we have to do it in a good way and for a very good reason that they're going to be eventually happy for. Uh, earlier, you were talking about how sponsorship and mentoring, it sounded like it was a part of your role. And I was curious what your approach to sponsoring and mentoring was. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think my approach is mainly around, I guess, two two ways I look at it. So I try and have, if there's someone I'm kind of working with at the moment, a kind of relatively focused weekly meeting where it's just one-on-one with just me and them to try and, I guess, almost work with them in a sort of manager-like relationship to talk about whatever their goals are and see what we can do to work towards that on a given week. I don't actually end up doing a lot of pairing uh, just because time zones mainly because my my team is mainly in uh, mid and west coast of the US and I'm in the UK. So I don't have a ton of time zone overlap with people. But what I try and do is I try and have that chat for sort of focus time and then encourage them to sort of think about what they're going to bring to me and bring things to me to for throughout the week. But then also try and stalk them a little bit as well so I, I try and keep an eye on what they're up to 
try and jump in and help them out if I can, try and just generally support them wherever I can. And then the big part of the role, I think, as well, has been getting people towards promotion. So I most of the people I've been mentoring have been people who are on the cusp of moving from one level to another, maybe becoming a senior engineer or becoming a staff engineer, for example. And I'm kind of either they've been pointed to me or I've been pointed to them so that we can kind of work together on that kind of process. So hopefully they can get promoted. And yeah, I start, I'm sure as those of you who've known worked for big companies will know, you know, a certain amount of that is here's how to become a better engineer. And a certain amount of that is like, okay, here's how you need to play the game in some ways if you want to kind of get through that that promotion process and get promoted. The other side of the mentorship equation for me as well is when those people are hopefully going for up for promotion, then we have obviously a relatively big company formal process for making that happen. And hopefully at that stage as well, like I've worked with them enough and I've given them enough feedback and suggested what they have to do that they've actually done that. And I've seen them do that. And then I can go and actively advocate for them as part of the promotion process as well. And I think particularly the higher level people are coming, then we value obviously staff engineers feedback on someone who's getting it promoted to a staff engineer more than we might value a a junior engineer's feedback um, or sorry a more junior engineer we don't technically have junior engineers so i think that's the way i've gone about mentorship myself but it, it's something that i'm relatively new to i guess the formal process of doing it i've informally done outside of work mentorship for a long time through you know google summer of code and homebrew maintainers and all these types of folks but yeah the more formal process is slightly newer to me so i'm sure i still have a lot to learn there as well is there, you mentioned sort of like the, the, the folks that you mentor, and it sounds like they're not necessarily folks that are on your team. So I'm curious if there's a process that you use for, for sort of choosing the folks that you work with. Yeah. So right now there's like everyone until very recently has been people within my org. So I'm generally happy to sort of do like one-offs with anyone else. Um, but I, I generally try and restrict my recurring meetings with people outside my org just because it's is, easy is to it get folks a that come to you or, or or their managers come to you or you reach out to them or sort of how does that work? yeah so so the mentors within my team it's been yeah like it's been a sort of discussion sort of mutual between their managers and me and then i go and offer them you know no, no one's ever forced to kind of take mentorship but i can you know <laughs> offer them Right, and say, hey, like I can help you out in this way, and and something I found helpful in, in that way as well, because sometimes people are can be a little bit not resistant, but not from because they don't want to be helped. They're resistant because they're like, oh, but you're important and your time is so valuable. I don't want to waste your time helping me. And then <laughs> what I found this helpful to point out is say, like, well, I guess particularly when I was um, going for the staff promotion, I was like, well, I need to demonstrate my ability to successfully mentor people to become senior engineers. So you're actually doing me a favor if you if you let me do this and if you let me work with you and if you get promoted, that's going to reflect well on me and help me get promoted as well. So it's a win-win here. And I find like whenever I've sold it like that, people are dramatically more willing to, to sort of engage with the process once they see that it's benefiting me as well. Right, right. That makes sense. But yeah, but I, I have kind of taken on people like outside of my org as well. Um, and I guess in those cases, I'm sort of looking for 
I guess almost like what I was saying with the code stuff before, like why me? Like what is it specific about me that seems to kind of provide value to that person? And in, you know, the one person who I'm mentoring in that way right now, I guess the the answer is I have a pre-existing relationship with them. I refer them to kind of join GitHub and they sort of will probably speak a bit more candidly to me um, and also perhaps accept more candor in return than someone who, you know, they've not, because they've not been at the company a, a super long time um, and they maybe haven't quite built up that kind of trust and relationship with with other people. But I guess for me, all mentoring is a, or has been at least like a, a relatively short-term thing. So I'm like everyone I'm sort of mentoring, I'm sort of trying to reevaluate every like six months. Are they still getting a lot of value out of this? And if they're not, then can sort of offer them either to just do it less regularly, you know, maybe go from weekly to fortnightly or monthly or whatever, or you can say, okay, well, let's do this one-offs when you need it. Or, you know, if they feel like they really still need it, then we can kind of continue to do that. But I'm trying to make sure, you know, get that balance of providing the most value to whoever I can provide it to. Of course. So we're almost at time. I have two more questions I want to cover. Uh, so maybe lightning round. What are some resources, books, blogs, people, et cetera, that you've learned from and that have sort of helped you in your in your journey as a staff engineer? Yeah. So I guess the main one would be relatively obvious, like the staff engineer, like staffeng.com site. I mean, I, I would say for me, that's been... 90% of my sort of thinking around this stuff has been that. And then beyond that, it's been just probably individual conversations with people in and outside the company about how they do things and, and how they work and stuff like that. But I guess as we touched on before as well, for me, another big part of it has been the you know open source experience and also perhaps the sort of the mentorship side of open source as well, stuff like programs like Major League Hacking and Google Summer of Code and Outreaching and things like that, where you can sort of have a more, certainly the men, on the mentorship side, a more formal sort of mentorship relationship with someone for a, a short time period. I think that's been really useful in sort of teaching me some of these skills too. Cool. So our, our last question, um, hopefully this is a fun question and we've asked everyone, you know, how much time do you spend coding still? I don't know. I would say maybe up to on a good week probably up to about 50 60 percent of my time um and on a bad week maybe like 20 percent of my time i think for me the nice fallback is that i can always find code to justify writing on homebrew so even if i i know i can't justify any like github code right now i know that this homebrew has got a backlog that's longer than anything I've ever seen in my life. So I can always pick something up, work on something and, you know, ship that in quite a satisfying way, even if I can't necessarily do that with my work stuff. Cool. Well, <laughs> That's a pretty, so good, uh, pretty good outlet to have. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Cool. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure, guys. This was really fun to talk. That's it. Thanks so much for listening to Staff Inch. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider adding a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. It helps others find the show and is a really useful signal to us that folks are finding value in this so that we keep doing it. You can find the notes from today's episode at our website, podcast.staffenge.com. The website also has our contact info. Please don't be shy. 